Hey guys, TG here for Lakeshore Records and another edition of the Lakeshore Records podcast. And on this episode, I am giddy with glee because I am I'm speaking to one of my musical heroes today, which is something that Lakeshore allow me to do quite often. So uh, hats off to them. But today I'm talking to uh, the one and only Charlie Clouser. Uh, some of you guys will know for the fantastic Saw scores, uh, Jigsaw he just recently did, Dead Silence. There's so much I want to talk about with Charlie. So this may be the longest podcast I've ever recorded in my life. We should wait and see. But Charlie, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Good, good, good. So the reason we are speaking is the upcoming release of the Saw Anthology 1 and 2, which are basically um, compiled scores of all eight Saw movies from the first one up to Jigsaw. So I can imagine narrowing down each of those Saw scores must have been some task. It was, yeah, it, I won't say it was Herculean, but it was pretty close. I mean, there was something like 11 or or 12 hours of score. If you count every ambient piece of weirdness and every molecule of music across all eight movies it was a lot hmm. and you know not all of it is suitable for casual recreational listening because there's <laughs> a lot of you know the saw movies are absolutely wallpapered with score it's sort of this the type of situation where you can't take your foot off the gas pedal for a second in a saw movie there's always got to be some kind of even if there's not a, a thematic or a moment or a pounding drum moment there still has to be some kind of murky scary dark ambience and so it was you know when i opened when i double clicked on that folder <laughs> contains <laughs> that contains every saw cue ever i did groan for a second and <laughs> it did wind up taking me the better part of a month to go through it partly because you know, I was perhaps a little too, uh, uh, you know, a little too stringent that I wanted to uh, listen to every molecule. And if there was one cool little piece that I could somehow edit and crossfade in, then I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. So it was a, it was a bear. Definitely. Did you in going through that process, which, I mean, you said it, it took like a month, did you come across anything that, you know, and you kind of listened to something and you surprised yourself where you'd forgotten about a certain cue or, or a piece and you listened back and thought, hey, man, that's really cool. Oh, there were a lot of those moments for sure. And but there were also a lot of moments where I'd listened to a piece that had worked great in the context of the film, but I felt worked less great as a recreational listening mm. moment. So it was, I, I was very conscious that I, I wanted it to be something that was enjoyable and interesting to listen to when you're not watching someone's arm get pulled out of the socket. <laughs> you know? uh, and there were quite a few of even the, the very elaborate and dense uh, pieces of music that were that would accompany some of the trap scenes, which you'd think, well, you start with just use all of those because they're all big and thick and have industrial drums and all kinds of mayhem going on. But there were quite a few of those cues, which surprisingly to me were not as fun to listen to when you weren't watching like the pig juicer mm. or uh, and and so I. It was kind of it was agonizing process to some degree, trying to pick and choose. But uh, I did, you know, part of what I wanted to do was because there's eight movies, and we figured, hey, if we're doing a vinyl release and we can do a, a volume one and volume two, it winds up adding up to eight vinyl sides. I thought, you know, I'm just going to establish a rule for myself, which is that each movie would get to occupy one vinyl side, which mm. is 18 or 20 minutes or so. And in the hopes that 
it would be like a chronological journey through the whole franchise instead of just making, you know, disc one is all the ambient stuff and disc two is all the pounding drum stuff out of order and unrelated to each other. I wanted to, I, I established that ground rule, which may or may not have been a good idea that each 20 minute chunk is a microcosm of one of the movies and keeping the even keeping the music within those 20 minute chunks in chronological order as they appeared within each movie. So having that ground rule established at least gave me something I could work around as opposed to just trying to, you know, make disc A be the ambient stuff and disc mm. B be the drum stuff or whatever. I, that would have actually been more agonizing. <laughs> so having that that ground rule established made it a little easier for me to 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 fit things together. Well, it works. It works on so many levels. I, I've been fortunate enough to be uh, to have been able to listen to all eight sides um, for for you know the last few weeks now, and they work so well. You know, distilling. What essentially, I mean, you say the films, they're all packed with score and they really are. Distilling that down to an 18 or 20 minutes is, has to be, you know, even though you say, you know, maybe wasn't a Herculean task, but it's still, you've made, you've compiled these sides and they work really well as a standalone one-sided score. They really do. Like there are peaks and valleys, which I like. Whereas like you say, if you'd have done all the ambient side or the ambient stuff on one side and then the drums on the other, it would have been a kind of a discordant listen. One minute it's all nice and ambient. Next minute it's like, "Ah, I'm terrified. So I love the way they're laid out. I genuinely, genuinely do. And I would say that Saw is probably the first time I heard your work as a composer. But the first time I was introduced to you was uh, through the band Nine Inch Nails. Now, when going back into uh, when you started as a musician, what came first for you? Was it film music or was it bands? Well, I always wanted to be involved more you know i wanted to be involved in bands and i you know my formative bands that that you know changed my life were bands like talking heads devo mm. pink floyd Kraftwerk, roxy music um killing joke bands in the late 70s early 80s when there was kind of a a lot of shifting and a lot of new genres coming out um, you know, one of the very influential records for me was uh, the David Byrne and Brian Eno record, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which many studio heads will also cite that as an influential work because it was one of the first times we heard sort of tape techniques of splicing together the vocals from an Ofrahaza record over a track that the Talking Heads rhythm section had done. And that sort of, I, I don't want to call it mashup, but that studio collage type of compositions uh, was very influential to me. And, you know, I always loved the elaborate and difficult studio recordings more than a kick-ass live show. You know, I've always, right. I've always been more of a, of a studio head, uh, uh, you know, my, my catch, my, my way of uh, encapsulating that is I'm much more of a lab rat than a road dog. You know, right. I sure love seeing a kick-ass live show. But what really, you know, I was the kid that was I grew up on a dirt road in Vermont. So I'd be up in my bedroom with the headphones on playing that same 20 seconds of Pink Floyd over and over again, trying to figure out how they <laughs> did that, you know. So that kind of influence was what drove me to 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 seek a career at doing this but as it turned out my first actual job where i was paid to make music was working on television scores i you know fresh i studied electronic music in college before midi so electronic music in those days meant an arp synthesizer that was the size of a refrigerator <laughs> and two four-track reel-to-reel machines. Right. Um, sort of classic uh, New England academic electronic music, tape collage techniques, that kind of thing. And 
when I graduated college in 1985, I actually, I did have a real job for about two years. And that was working at the Sam Ash Music Store in Manhattan, which in the pre-internet era, that was like Mecca. And if you wanted to, to learn about or see whatever the hot new drum machine or keyboard was, you had to physically go to 48th Street in Manhattan and make your pilgrimage hmm. and go into either Sam Ash or Manny's or Alex Music. And there you could see whatever the, you know, whatever came out, whatever hot new synth or sampler had just come out, they had it first. And so I actually worked in the music store as the, I was the the computer and software expert at the Manhattan Sam Ash store for a couple of years. And one of my customers there was an Australian film composer and ex record producer named Cameron Allen. And he was just a good customer of mine. You know, most of your, when you work at a store like that, most of your customers are not people you vibe with. Hmm. Cameron and I hit it off because we, we liked many of the same kind of records. We liked anything that Brian Eno's, was Brian Eno was involved in. We liked Roxy music and this sort of, you know, ambient, spacey, early Fairlight productions, Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush, that sort of thing. And so he and I hit it off and he would come to, he was living in Australia and he would come to Manhattan a couple times a year to see what the new gear was and to maybe pick up a new sampler or a piece of software. And we hit it off. After I had worked at the store for about two years, Cameron moved to New York City to uh, compose the score to the final season of the CBS television series, The Equalizer. Oh. Remember that? Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Edward Woodward. Fantastic. Exactly. Which er the, the earlier seasons and the theme had been done by Stuart Copeland from The Police mm. on his Fairlight system. So it already had... We, you know, we Stuart went off to do something else, and so Cameron picked up the gig to to do what turned out to be just the last season of the show. And when he moved to New York to set up shop to do this, um, he said, "Hey, why don't you come on up to my place after you get off work at Sam Ash and uh, and help me with this stuff?" And so, the, I and it was a very, you know, Cameron and I thought of we had a very similar approach. It was very, the music that we wound up doing was very minimal, minimalist. Mm. We had very small minimalist equipment set up and it was just that, you know, we, we sort of had a similar outlook on how to do this stuff. And that was great because that, I, that was the first time I got to see sort of how the, how the sausage gets made, you know? <laughs> and, and I got to see what, what my job was, was to, design all the sounds and program all the sounds on our on our at that time crude setup which was you know a Korg wave station synth and and a couple of Akai samplers and a Jupiter 8 and that sort of thing so I would program all the sounds and then Cameron and I would work on the music together and then I would do all the drum programming and so forth and and anything that resembled a scary weird noise like you know a snare drum tuned down four octaves with a slow attack to make a evil breath sound or you know mm. that thing so that was i did i spent a few years working with cameron before i got any headway into making records we worked together for a couple of years both on the equalizer and then on a few other television movies um which and working with him is what brought me out to los angeles <laughs> so i'm out here in los angeles kind of doing half time working with cameron and through old college friends, I got involved in programming drums and synths for uh, our acts like Prong, who my old buddy, oh. uh, my old buddy JB, who now is the keyboard player in ministry, uh, was playing keyboards in Prong. Um, and so I programmed drums on a couple of their records, and that led me into uh, White Zombies World. And so I did a bunch of programming and for them and then that turned into doing remixes and so by the time i got involved with nine inch nails i already had a, i'd spent a few years working in television scoring and had also done quite a few uh album session programming gigs as well as remixes that i did all by myself in my little crude setup in those days so that was the stuff that that trent 
Reznor liked that I had already done. Hmm. And so when when it came time to start working with him, that was, I think, uh, if I can guess what his motivation was to bring me into his world, was to bring some of that um, remix outlook into into the Nine Inch Nails world to have as an in-house, you know, arbiter of that kind of technology and approach. And I was doing things like, you know, taking hip hop loops and compressing the hell out of them and pitching them way down and putting those seamlessly behind the live drums on a white zombie record and doing that kind of thing, which seemed to fit the sort of studio destruction uh, approach that Nine Inch Nails was taking at that at that point in time, and so that would have been about ninety three or so is when I started working with with Nine Inch Nails. And you were with the band through what is considered now to be like the classic lineup um, of the band. I mean, that's such a I mean, <laughs> your journey has been fascinating already, and, and we're just up to you. There's a lot of good timing in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like the the, the one that, you know working in a music. I mean, it's kind of like the dream come true working in a music store to then here you are now kind of a thing it's exactly. it's you know it's it's a great story so you're you're in nine inch nails you join the band in the early 90s you you're in the band for i think a decade around then um what was the kind of impetus to go back to film music or, or to get into you know film composition and tv composition well i'd always you know not only was i completely a a, a studio head and just loved staying up all night fiddling with synthesizers and instruments and just trying to make sounds that I'd never heard before. But, you know, even in within the context of Nine Inch Nails, that was, it sounds a little cliche to say it now, but it's a fairly cinematic band. Mm, you know, yeah. There was a lot of uh, instrumental tracks and weird little ambient interludes and just there was a lot more than just the hits, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And so that was what attracted me to being involved in in the band in the first place. And so that was always kind of in the back of my mind was that at some point I'd want to get back because I enjoyed so much those years that I worked with Cameron on these scores, even though we were doing sort of, you know, we weren't the Equalizer was a cool show, but it wasn't like become a completely a, a glamour or prestige no. gig yeah. but it's cool it was very it, we had a lot of freedom to create interesting and unusual and weird stuff and so when i left nine inch nails in about 2001 i returned to los angeles thinking well i'm gonna let me let me produce a bunch of records with some of the artists that i've worked with in a remixing context and i did the, the first thing i did when i came back to la in 2001 was to uh, uh, to finish a record with Paige Hamilton from the band Helmet, that he and I had become friends when Helmet opened up for Nine Inch Nails on certain legs of certain tours, mm. and wound up writing a few tracks together. And so, uh, when I came back to LA, the two of us slaved in my house to complete the Helmet album called Size Matters, um, which had a lot of um, it, it had a lot of programmed elements that were kind of new to the, you know, Helmet was almost like a power trio kind of band. It was just guitar, bass, drums, vocals, that's it. So for the Size Matters album, we did a, a little bit, we expanded the palette, I guess you could say, of, of mm. And while that album was in progress, I uh, reunited with Cameron Allen, who I'd stayed friends with all through all the years that I was involved with Nine Inch Nails and everything. We stayed in contact because he was just one of those people that, uh, want, you know, one of the few people that uh, that I had met along the years that we that had a similar outlook to me, and so as we're as I'm working on the Helmet album, Cameron came up to the house that I was renting up in in Beechwood Canyon in Hollywood, and he said, "Hey, you know, there's TV shows around if you want to get back on that horse," because Cameron was the type of composer who composed uh, from the couch uh, would be right. the correct way to put it. <laughs> he would actually, you know the. It, it sounds like I'm making this up, but he would actually lie on the couch with a super soaker water gun and he would fall asleep, 
but he would wake up if you played something he didn't like. And then he would squirt you with the super soaker <laughs> to let you know that you're playing too many eighth notes and not enough quarter notes or whatever. And so he he was ang- he had, he was sort of a renaissance man. He would spend years doing other things like uh, he'd move back to Australia and spend a year painting. And then he'd come back to Los Angeles and make a documentary film with his wife. And that, but when I ran into him again in 2001, he said, you know, there's TV shows around if you want to get back on that horse. Uh, because he wasn't going to do these kind of gigs by himself. He needed sort of his little two-man, three-man team. Hmm. So we teamed up again, and uh, we did a, a, a fairly cheesy TV show called Fast Lane that was on Fox for just one season, sort of a, a buddy cop kind of show. But it was a lot of fun, and it let me rem- let me refresh my memory at uh, exactly how, that, how this stuff gets done. And while we were doing that show, Fast Lane, and while Hel- the Helmet album was in progress in my – in my main studio. Fortunately, I had two room, two setups at my house. And the theory was that we could be recording and tracking in the main rig and we could be editing drums or whatever on the, on the B rig. Right. Right. And while helmet was, while Paige was recording vocals in the A room, I got a phone call from my lawyer who I've been with for since the beginning of my career and who I never talked to except like once a year, if there's like some emergency, you know, and I usually when I talk to my lawyer, I can hear, uh, I can hear waves crashing in the back, <laughs> you know, and steaks sizzling on the grill and like ice cubes in a highball glass tinkling, <laughs> calling me to wish me happy birthday or something from his freaking beach house in Santa Barbara or whatever. Um, and, <laughs> But he calls me one day and there's no waves crashing and there's no stakes sizzling. And it's like 10 <laughs> on a Tuesday. And he says, Charlie, got a pencil? Take this take this number down. Take this names and numbers down. And so I write, I dutifully write down these names and numbers of James Wan and Lee Wanell. And he says, there's these guys. I've been representing them as they try to get this their script and their indie, this indie horror movie made. And they've finished their indie horror movie and they've got a bunch of your very obscure import only european only release remixes in their temp score oh and he said you need to go down and talk to these guys right now and you might be able to lock in the gig to score this horror film so i call these guys up it's like 10 in the morning on a Tuesday. By noon, I'm down in an editing suite on Highland Avenue watching the first rough cut of the first Saw movie. And sure enough, they've got a, they've, you know, James and Lee are true connoisseurs of, of whatever they're involved in. And the music that they had put in, the temp score of the first Saw movie was everything from Einstein to Neubotten to Ministry to some really obscure Nine Inch Nails remixes that I had worked on. Um, and, you know, very industrial flavored mayhem kind of temp score. And they didn't want sort of, you know, a big orchestral horror score. They wanted something yeah. really gritty and unusual. Um, and so by lunchtime, I had watched the movie and then I was hired and they said, great, you've got five weeks. Can you do it? And fortunately I knew that it would take Paige Hamilton longer than five weeks to finish his vocals. So <laughs> I went home and did the first Saw movie, uh, in the B room at my studio. And, uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, when you look at the Saw films, there are two things that really stand out. One of them is Tobin Bell. And the other one is you. You are so synonymous now that if, if anybody else goes near a Saw movie, there will be hell to pay, put it that way. I mean, it, it's not often that a composer will stay with a film franchise for this many films either. And one of the great things about listening to this anthology now is how each film is it lives in the same family, but they're all completely different. Uh, you know, listening to the first Saw movie, I'm just like, oh, God, this takes me back. I love this. And then flipping out the, uh, the record over to uh, Saw 2. And there's some great discordant strings in there. And it's it's kind of jarring. And then Saw 3, it's, it's quite emotional uh, as, as the movies themselves changed. Mm-hmm. When you were like 
you do the first movie the first movie becomes this huge huge success worldwide everybody's talking about saw was the talk of saw 2 happening almost immediately were you brought on at the start of this one how did that work you know it was it was funny because when the first one was was a was fit was in the can um we didn't know i mean you you, you do your best James and Lee and everybody else, everybody had the utmost confidence in what the work they had done. We knew we had something special on our hands, but you never know if it's going to hit or miss with the audiences mm-hmm. until it hits or misses. Um, and as by the time the, the, the first one came out and did such great business, instantly the talk was, how do we extend this story and, and expand upon this universe? And I guess it's a good thing I'm not a screenwriter because I thought that the ending of the first one was the absolute end of the story, you know, and like, (laughs) how do you continue on from there? And that's why I am not a screenwriter and should never (laughs) be trusted to try to write a screenplay because once I saw the, the, the script and the, the rough cuts from Saw 2 and realized how they could expand on the characters and the universe that they had built, then I really felt like an idiot for not being able to predict that and not, for not realizing that, oh, you can go back in time and show the backstory behind mm. what, what drove Tobin Bell's character to do this. And you can expand all upon the stories of all the victims and how their their trials and tribulations in Jigsaw's world then caused them to become, you know, acolytes, disciples of of Jigsaw. And, you know, I'm glad you noticed that there's a sort of a differing tone between the various sequels, because that's very much, you know, I'm very much reacting to not only the storyline and the characters and the dialogue and so forth, but also the visual tone and the visual approach of the various directors that have been in the driver's seat on Mm. various sequels, you know, and for instance, Darren Bowsman's visual style is almost sort of has a Gothic element to it. Um, And, you know, as, and that affects not just the sounds that I might want to use, but also just my general musical approach. And so like in the, in the music from the films that Darren directed, there's a lot more of this sort of plodding dirge like a a feel and some more of those sort of Gothic, almost choir like sounds and these ever ascending chord progressions and things, which looking back at the whole anthology, those musical styles didn't occur in movies that he didn't direct. And that that made me realize that, oh yeah, I was really tying my musical approach to the visual approach that the various directors have taken. And right. you know, that's very much the case with um with Jigsaw. Now that we have the Spearig brothers in the driver's seat, the look of this eighth movie, Jigsaw, is there's more, there's actual daylight in the movie, you know, then, and there's whole aspects of the storyline that don't take place in some gritty, grungy dungeon lair. Yeah. And so that's, that very much affected my musical approach because now I can have a, a daylight storyline in the score. And that's in contrast to the, the familiar sort of, ambient murk that we hear when we're you know crawling through a a a sparsely lit hallway in the basement of some shithole somewhere you know no no yeah of course absolutely i mean it's one of the things i noticed when watching jigsaw is which i loved by the way i thought jigsaw was absolutely fantastic as a fan of the franchise it was exactly what i wanted to see good the film the film wasn't reinventing the wheel but it was like I'm home again. 
you know everything about this movie i can't wait i I mean i hope there are tons of sequels to this movie i want the franchise to carry on forever um but that might just be the crazed fan in me but i'm I'm with you on that good good well i mean hopefully we can uh hopefully we can come back and talk a little bit later down the line about jigsaw 2 and 3 and (laughs) 4 and and, uh and that but when you know when i'm in the movie theater as soon as the score starts i mean i'd heard the score before i saw the movie but there's one thing about listening to a score record away from the film yes you can listen to it and you can enjoy it but once you're seeing it on the screen it does take on a whole new life it really does and as soon as the music started and the uh i mean the 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 film opens kind of the film opens at like a hundred miles an hour you know there's instantly there's the chase Mm -hmm. uh with uh with edgar and i was just I, i instantly felt like i was at home i just this is so this is what i've been waiting for for the last couple of years so how was it going back entering that world again considering you'd done so much other stuff i mean since since you first started doing saw i mean you've scored over 200 episodes of television music which is uh, which is unlike the saw scores so was it was it an easy fit to go back yeah i mean because the first saw movie was the first scoring project that i was completely in the driver's seat for um it's it's ne- I n- I'll never be in a position where I'm sitting there scratching my head trying to figure out how did I do that? What, mm. what, how, what were the, what was the mechanism I used to achieve that feel? <laughs> you know, it's very, it's the whole saga of the Saw franchise has been, you know, that's been my, uh, educa- my, my education, my baptism of fire, you know, and that's been where I've learned the most, uh, and and grown the most and been able to try out a whole variety of new approaches within the relative safety of the familiarity of the Saw franchise. And that, um, you know, I, I was, I, I think I'm a little lucky because my, the, my approach on the first Saw movie was, was enough left of center that it what they I don't think at any point were directors or producers thinking hmm which A-list composer can we get to replace Charlie on right because right. I, I'd already kind of accidentally on purpose made this slightly iconoclastic slightly unusual approach to it and I, I got you know all credit to James and Lee and all the other directors and Kevin Groiter, the editor who also directed a couple of the sequels. Kevin's been on board for every single movie in either as an editor or as a director. And the producers have been on board for every movie and all credit to them. You know, thank you one and all, because at no point did they ever say or suggest anything other than, Hey man, you up for another one? You know, they were always gung ho to have me come back and take it to the next level. Um, and I never felt that I was, you know, in competition with the the, the larger pool of Hollywood film composers, mm. partly because what I had done was a little bit lopsided and, and, and off center, just enough that it that they, they would probably be thinking, oh, man, it's riskier to get some A-list super pro to come in and and do this because that'll dilute the weirdness and the unusualness and the uniqueness of this that yeah. they've built. So I kind of the the fact that I was off center enough, just enough <laughs> to to ensure that only I know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> it's I mean because there are so many films now like i said before i mean you you never really hear of a composer scoring eight movies i can't i mean jerry goldsmith scored three omen movies uh, and there have been other i mean you look at the nightmare on elm street series they had a different composer each time around friday the 13th for the most part they use harry manfredini uh saw and jigsaw it's charlie clauser that's the that's all it's ever you know that's it that's a lock how does it feel now to the Zep theme, that's like, that is now a classic 
movie horror theme. You hear that? I actually, I conducted an interview with um, Aaron Lupton, who is the music editor of Room Org magazine. And we did this Halloween episode where he picked a bunch of his favorite Halloween tracks that he would throw on if he was at a party. And all of the tracks were kind of like rock songs from 80s and 90s horror movies, apart from one, and that was Zep the Zep theme from Saw and it was the only orchestral piece he chose and his reasoning behind it was he's like look this is just this is our modern day classic and I'm like you know what you're totally right so how does it feel knowing that you have created a modern horror classic it's a bit it's a little unreal but it's gratifying to be sure Mm. because all you know so much of what I did on the first movie um, was, you know, it was, there was, it was very much a conscious effort that the whole body of the score up until the Hello Zep theme starts at the very end of the movie on purpose. I wanted the whole score to sound murky and underwater and dimly lit. And as though, you know, the, 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 the phrase I keep using to describe that approach was that for the whole main part of the movie, it's like you're watching a fight from across a parking lot at night and you can see a bunch of guys and they're kicking and punching somebody, but you can't see how many people are beating up how many victims. And it's, there's something bad happening, but it's at a distance and you don't want to get too close. Hmm. And then when the hello Zep theme starts, it's as though the floodlights get turned on and all those guys that were beating somebody up run across the parking lot and they're staring you in the face from six inches away. Right. And so that was this that was the sort of conscious uh, mission statement that I made to myself when when doing the first movie. And so I knew that when that moment comes, when when the, the sort of ending montage with the voiceover begins and, you know, Jigsaw's character finally starts to get up from the floor of that of the, the shitty little dungeon where where uh, where they're trapped. At that moment, I wanted to be like the lights get turned on. And so all those sounds that are used in the Hello Zep theme don't appear anywhere else in the score. Mm. And I on purpose used a very small string quartet. It was just four players. And there was live strings playing the, the, the strings on that. And on purpose, I didn't want it to sound sort of big and reverby and, you know, epic Hollywood movie score. I wanted it to sound tight and small and and strident and bold and simple. And I knew that if it was to be, you know, because at that point in the movie, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of flashbacks in the picture. There's a lot of quick edits in the picture to keep track of. There's the voiceover of Jigsaw describing the whole twist ending to you. So the music had to be, if it was, if, if it was to be effective, it would have to be relatively simple and be forceful and hypnotic, but not contain a a million notes. Mm. And, and so that I knew I would have to have a, a compact, small little molecule of musical phrase that could then grow and expand as that, cue goes on and there's a couple of little melodic breakdowns and a couple of sort of turnarounds but the actual musical data contained within hello zep is fairly compact and small and that meant that it wasn't going to distract the viewer and it wasn't going to wasn't going to occupy more than 20 percent of the viewer's CPU time, you know, right, so right. could have all their attention focused on trying to keep track of all these flashbacks and what the voiceover is saying and still have this effective and forceful theme underneath it. So fortunately, once I had that mission statement in the back of my mind, the music that resulted from obeying that rule that I set out for myself also co- semi-coincidentally became memorable and catchy in the way that, you know, the Halloween theme is or the tubular bells piece that's used in the exorcist, Um, that it's, it's hypnotic and linear, but you can figure out what it is in a couple of seconds 
and then just enjoy the ride. And you don't have to keep occupying your mind trying to decode this ever-changing piece of music. And so the, 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 the intended, although perhaps only semi-intended uh, result, is that it's catchy in the way that, uh, you know, a, a pop song might be. And so that, it was on purpose, but it was on purpose for a different reason. In other words, it right. had to work against, it had to fit the criteria that I've described because of what was going on on screen. Fortunately, when you remove that piece of music from the picture and just listen to it, it then becomes sort of catchy and it has a flow like a song might. And uh, so it was planned, but it was planned for a different reason. <laughs> well, I mean, to, to me, it's as soon as I hear that that piece of music, to me, it's like the ultimate aha moment. It's like, <gasps> oh my god and then instantly i can just hear halozette playing in my head like i hear it playing like even now just talking about it the song is going round and round in my head because you know I, i've been listening to it a lot anyway but as <laughs> soon as you hear that it's kind of you grip the arms of the seat and you're like ah something and you know it's it's the signal to the audience that okay yes. pay attention because here comes a whole it's, lot of information this is it, and yeah. that's it's something you don't get all the time now, especially in modern horror composition. You know, we've had lots of great horror movies recently, uh, with lots of great scores from different different composers and, and different artists. But you know, I, I grew up with film music, and I still love the musical cues like that. You know, I really like. Oh man, this means something. You know, inst when you hear it, you instantly know. Like oh. The, the, like you say, you should pay attention now because something is going to happen. So uh, my hat is off to you for that because well, it's just, thank you. it's a wonderful piece of music. Before I, I want to divert from Saw just a little bit if we can, sure. uh, but it's kind of in the Saw family. Um, Dead Silence and Death Sentence. Mm -hmm. Two films that probably don't get talked about that much, especially uh, Death Sentence, but the score for Dead Silence. Dude, that thing is a fucking masterpiece. Well, thank you again. And a, a lot of the credit goes to James Wan on that because, you know, James directed that. And I, I, I had started work on the score and I was fiddling about and I had a few cues kind of sort of mocked up. And he came over to my studio to, to hear where, what, I had, what I had done so far. And I played him all these disjointed pieces that, that didn't really go together. And I was, you know, I hadn't really found the thing yet. And... He Im immediately could see with his clarity of vision that what needed to be done, which was, and he explicitly told me, he said, write the final piece of music first and write this, this ending theme, whatever mm. that's going to be, and create that and build that up as big as you need it to be. And then we'll use the musical content of that to inform the whole rest of the movie. And I was, you know, at that point I had started at the beginning and was kind of trudging my way towards the end. I hadn't even gotten to the big climactic end sequences yet. And so after he gave me the, that suggestion, then I immediately sat down and and it was, it was by no means uh, like pulling teeth. It was a fairly simple and straightforward process. And I kind of came up with that and then i realized oh now that i have that little nugget of theme i can reinterpret that all throughout the the film whether it's on the little sort of music box sound that would that would tie in with uh you know the the shots of of the ventriloquist dummies and would tie into that sort of malfunctioning toy vibe um and once I had cracked that nut, then the the whole thing just fell together, and it was it was an enjoy it was a much more enjoyable and simple process. Once I took James's advice, <laughs> you know. <Right. laughs> now looking back, I realized why didn't I, I should have just done that from the how did I not know to do that automatically? Well, now I know, um, and so that's an approach that I often take on subsequent films. But, you know, I, I agree that Dead, you know, when I look at all the, the, the stuff that I've done, still Dead Silence has 
a, a coherence throughout all the different cues. They all relate mm. back to that simple little music box phrase, which is even in the main title sequence and everything. And it definitely helps to have a sense of continuity, even if it's subconscious, even if it's some ambient, squishy, floaty cue with very quiet, indistinct strings. But if they're playing the same musical material that's embodied in that little clanky music box theme, it subconsciously, I hope to the audience, adds this sense of continuity and a sense of place mm. to, the, to the whole experience. So I'm, I'm glad you called that one out because I always thought that was an, an overlooked uh, high point of my scoring career to oh. date, you know? So, so much. I mean, I, I talked to, uh, you know, I've got a ton of friends in the horror community, some that also host podcasts. And, and Dead Silence is a film that comes up as, yeah, it's a film that doesn't get a lot of love. But the, 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 the thing for me is like, dude, do you remember the score? Because the score for that film is just fantastic. It's easily one of Charlie's, for me personally, it's one of my favorite scores that you've you've ever created to date. Um, and for anyone listening, if you haven't listened to Dead Silence in a while, treat yourself because that is what it is. The score for that film is an absolute treat. So we talked about movies. You've done so many episodes, episodic like scores, well over two hundred. Uh, you've you've done eight movies of Saw. You've you've worked consistently now scoring since the early two thousands. What's next for you? Oh man, who knows? <laughs> you know, obviously, I'm on board for as many Saw sequels as they care to crank out. I love the franchise from the bottom of my heart, and there's always there's always more to be. Uh, experienced musically for me anyway from doing that like I'll never run out of gas in that particular gas tank but and and who knows maybe Jigsaw will uh, will signal the the relaunch of the franchise and maybe we'll, maybe they'll be coming hot and heavy every year just like mm. they used to be but you know as I look forward you know the last series that I did was this series called Wayward Pines which was on Fox which was a, an a super fun series to score and had a similar kind of unifying theme that it was a creepy little mountain town and, and, and everybody's in on something, but you don't know what they're in on. Well, turns out it involves time travel and hibernation pods and 4,000 years of mankind's mm. history and, you know, blah, 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 way more than a, a way more epic story than was suggested by the first few episodes. And, so that was a huge amount of fun for, for me to do. And it helped to, you know, some of the other TV scoring stuff that I've done, you know, one was this series called Numbers, which is a fairly, in the scheme of things, is almost a more a, a conventional sort of procedural crime drama, even though it was definitely a little left of center. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, Law and Order or NCIS or anything. It was, it was a, had its own, uh, interesting slant. And I really enjoyed doing that. And, you know, a big genre of films that I've always loved outside of the horror genre is, um, you know, uh, I guess it's called the thriller genre, political mm -hmm. and espionage type thrillers. Um, you know, many of my favorite movies that I watch over and over again are, you know, everything from All the President's Men to... Uh, Three Days of the Condor and the classics like that, the Parallax View and the sort of the golden age of 70s political thrillers. But there have been there been that there's there's always a steady undercurrent of those kind of movies being made, even if they're not like the the the, the, the movies that set the world on fire. Right. You know? Um, and I'm, I've been a big fan of, I'm, I'm friends with Cliff Martinez, whose work I love. And, you know, he did one movie he did recently, which I thought was great, was a movie with Robert Redford called The Company You Keep. Very sort of subtle political thriller um, with some chases, chase scenes, but not chase scenes with like epic pounding war drums, you know. Right. And it was, it's more about tension and suspense. And, you know, another film that I, that I always recommend to people because I think it's a, a superb piece of f movie making art 
and has an amazingly great score is a movie called The International, which oh, was yes. Clive Owen and Naomi Watts, yeah. directed by Tom Tickwer, and with an amazing score, one of my favorite scores of all time, by uh, Reinhold Heil, Johnny Climack, and Tom, the director. The three of them collaborated together on that score. And I like that movie and that score so much that I, the only time I've ever really done this, I like reached out to all my friends. I was like, does anybody know this guy, Reinhold? <laughs> I want to meet this dude just to tell him how great I think that score is and to figure out how the hell did he do it? Um, and, and I succeeded and I've become friends with Reinhold Heil and turns out that, and he did a, he's done a, a, a few other really interesting and very tension-filled scores. There was a series he did recently called uh, uh, Deutschland 83, which was about the uh, spies in the Cold War, in the, you know, the closing years of the Cold mm. War. And, you know, a lot of those type of scores are not the full high-energy insanity of something like a Saw movie. And they're maybe not the catchy... Um, memorable thematic type of thing like dead silence might have been but i i'm always interested in those kind of movies and love it when the score works as well as it does in something like the international so that's a, a genre that i'm always hoping to get a little more traction in i may at this point i may be permanently pigeonholed as a horror composer but when you look at the larger scope and world of of horror films and horror scores, I'm not really like lined up dead center with that, you know, no. stuff that Joe Bashara is doing on, on James and Lee's other horror franchises. Um, but what I am, what I've wound up doing in the Saw franchise and on other stuff is not really all that directly targeted. It's, you know, it's a little off to one side. So uh, with any luck, I can kind of stretch my legs a little bit outside of the horror genre and into more of these kind of tension filled uh, and agonizing suspense as opposed to just the in your face insanity of the Saw mm. franchise. That Ooh. said, I will I'm on board for as many Saw, fran Saw sequels <laughs> as they care to make because I doing them and it's you know it's been my bread and butter for many years good that is great to hear and i i would love to hear you brian I mean, i'd love to see you tackle a comedy so you know hopefully fingers crossed you never know what's around the corner that's one thing that i've learned and i want to say a huge thank you charlie for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure uh chatting to you and and just learning about what you do the process behind it so thank you very much well, thanks for having me. And, you know, I hope once the uh, Saw anthology comes out that we won't get too much hate mail for all the uh, uh, the millions of cues that were left <laughs> out of the, of the collection. No, I'm sure once the people actually hear it, they are going to be over the moon because this has never happened before. This has never happened before. You'll be able to own these things. And trust me, they look good. They sound great. And uh, I think everybody's going to be over the moon. Excellent. Excellent.